tuning into the Attack and Release Show. My name is Matt, and I am joined today by my good friend from Nashville, Sam Moses. Hello, my friends. They're all your friends. All of you are my friends. Thank you for being my friend. Oh, wow. (laughs) All right. On today's (laughs) episode, we are going to be diving into the topic of how to review your master. This is, I don't know, would this be like not overly 101, but I would say like 201, 301 kind of Mm, topic. Perhaps a touch philosophical. Mm, Probably, yes. yes, yes. I don't know. Definitely, uh, definitely to personal tastes in some regard. So, uh, without any ado, let's uh, let's hop into a little bit of housekeeping and then crack this episode open. Woohoo! Housekeeping. Hello, audience, listener. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. It's just lovely to have you here today. If you could help us out during this housekeeping, uh, we would love for you to screenshot this episode or a past episode that you're listening to or love. Share it on Instagram. Tag me at Moses Mastering. Tag Matt at For the Record Mastering. We will reshare it. We also get to know you one-on-one. That is a continual benefit of getting to know our audience one-on-one. We have cool conversations. We all learn things. We help each other. And so we want to ask for your help once again to share the episode. It's going great. We're growing at a nice, sustainable pace. We're meeting lovely people. And uh, I like to think we're also making better records and finishing records better together. And that is housekeeping, my friends. All right. (laughs) All right. Well, okay. Oh, okay. All right, then. (laughs) Moving on. All right. Thanks, guy. (laughs) This again. This again. All right. (laughs) So... Let's just, uh, let's hop right into this. Bunny hop. Uh, this conversation of how to review your master. Yeah. And I suppose in order to even get to this point, you need to have a little bit of a foundation of what you have done leading up to this point. Um, <clears throat> not necessarily career-wise, but let's just say like the session that you are working in. So, do you want to get into, start off this episode with, like, when is a master done to you? Like, when is, let's call it, when is enough enough? <laughs> like, is it like, like you're, you're, you're done beating it up? Maybe you don't have to. Maybe you just, you know, a little, a little, a little bit of level on top, maybe a little bit of sweetening. Uh, when is a master done, Sam? I mean, for me, my headspace is always, my job is to finish a record and bring peace of mind that, you know, it's ready to come out, it's done. That is heavily bound by the context of what is the client's goal? What are the parameters? What do they want it to sound like? What does it sound like now? And what does it sound, what do they want it to sound like? The best case scenario is always they are stoked on the mix and basically say, we love the way it sounds. And then I review it first. I listen, which is our first job. 
And then that will tell me based on knowing, you know, my own experience and or research of what is the commercial market sounding like? Where are they going to be competing? You know, who are they competing with? Most Mm -hmm. people, I think we work with or we all work with want to have success, meaning they want to compete in the commercial market. So we have to be aware of what is going on in the commercial market. Um, And so for me, it's pretty quick at this stage um, to know when enough is enough because I have boundaries and parameters set up based on how does the song sound now and where do they want it, you know, what do they want it to sound like. So by knowing that, then that will tell me essentially like the recipe of what to use or not to use, you know, as far as plugins or gear or both. And best case scenario is always, for me, getting the mix and basically saying this just needs a little bit of level. You know, that Mm -hmm. is, the longer I do this, the more I realize my job really is just to first quality control listen and go, could this come out as is? If this was the master, you know, Mm -hmm. if this was released tomorrow, would this fly? Would this be good? Is it? Is it everything it can be? Has it reached its potential? Is it doing what the client, you know, wants it to do? And, you know, most of the times there are things we can still do at Mastering to uh, enhance. There's things about the song that the client may not like, or there's things more so. I'm always focusing on what is the song doing really well. I assume whatever is standing out um, in the song and in the mix is actually what the client likes which this is like part of my secret sauce in theory, if I can call it a secret sauce. I'm going to spill the tea of like my mindset is I focus on what is actually sticking out in the song and enhance those things. And I assume that at this stage, at the mastering stage, the client has listened to this mix a bajillion times more than I have and probably ever will, and the artist as well, and that whatever is coming to me and whatever is actually standing out is not an issue. It's something they wanted to highlight nine times out of 10, even more than that, 9.5 times out of 10. I've realized that when I get a mix, people are pretty stoked on it. And if you start flipping it on its head, just because you're like, oh, well, that's kind of weird or that's sticking out. I found clients don't necessarily love that. Um, So enough is enough happens way quicker um, than it used to when I started mastering. Sure. And enough. And is, I, I do want to touch on that. Yeah, too. definitely. And enough is enough is like, I know exactly what to do as soon as I listen and go, could this come out? The answer is usually, um, usually no, but it's more so based on what the client is wanting. Because there's a lot of times where I will hear a mix that, say, is heavily compressed and leveled already and it's in the range it needs to be. And in my gut, I'm going, yeah, you could just put this out and I actually believe it would compete, you know, and Mm. me having the knowledge to know like what a finished record sounds like. Sometimes a finished record sounds like the mix, like, (laughs) you know, like a really great mix that is competitively loud and compressed. But usually the client will vocalize things they're hoping to still do that they weren't able to accomplish at mix stage. Um, And, you know, they're hiring me for my experience and then also my 10,000 plus hours of knowing how to make things a bit larger, a bit bigger, a bit you know punchier and using 
mastering specific, I'll say, techniques or tools, which is, it's not secrets. It's just, you know, if you really get into mastering, you do learn how to master. Like, I'm a much better master engineer than I am a mixer. That's because I've put in way more time mastering. So, mm-hmm. you know, the chances of the mixer essentially finishing the record is pretty low. It doesn't happen very often, but it is in theory possible. Um, so anyway, that's how I kind of, you know, for me, from a mindset and an approach, you know, how I determine whether or not a record is done to then send back to the client for review and how, you know, I want to chat about like how they should, in theory, review a master properly. So let's start there. Monologue one, done. Well, do you have like a natural mental trigger that it kind of like dings of like, oh, shoot, we're there. Yeah, it's it's a... I mean, for me, it, I want to say now it's very gut-generated. Like, I feel... I was going to say instinctual is yeah, what I've written down for me. That's a great word. That's the, that's the best word. Instinctual, yeah. There's literally something in my, like, gut or body that feels when a song's in its sweet spot, especially with compression and messing with attack and release times. When you feel the song kind of reach out and also bounce around like in the groove of the song, like on beat basically, or even slightly mm. off depending on if you want to kind of make it feel a bit more exciting or slower, you know, your attack and release knobs will kind of, in theory, make a song feel faster or slower depending on if you're smashing the transients or whatever you're doing. But yeah, I have, I have very much now at this stage when I hear a song within the first, you know, if I just preview the chorus, I know exactly what I want to do with it, or it's more so I'm thinking, no, 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 yes to that one thing. Um, But yeah, I definitely have like a spidey sense thing (laughs) at this stage. But that wasn't always there. I think that just comes from putting in X amount of reps um, and also studying records you know, as we've talked about in previous episodes on how to listen, you know, and and you have to know what records sound like um, in your room and out of your room. And I think you need to know what mixes sound like. And it's very hard to know what mixes sound like until you have mastered or been able to listen to a lot of mixes or mastered a lot of records. So I wish there was like a... I don't even wish, you know, there's no... There's no real shortcut, in my opinion, to learning how to finish records outside of honestly kind of what we share. <laughs> but it's still going to take time to become great and to get that, develop that instinct. Because um, I feel like it took me like five or six years. Um, but I also feel like I learned just like stumbling in the dark and there was no good resources, to be honest. Um, yeah, I can but yeah. echo that for sure. Do you get a tingly feeling? I mean, as I said before, I really think it's instinctual. Yeah. And what's interesting is when it happens and something is not to level, yeah. like not to the level that it should be. And I always, I don't, I don't doubt anything that I have done. Yeah. But it's like, okay, well, why am I at this stage? And this thing needs to be reading a good bit louder. Right. Does it need to be going there? 
What's like, and so like, I kind of run through this mental checklist of, is it okay here, or do we really need to kind of like push it a little bit? Right. Um, I mean, I would say that like you can very easily push a song way too far. Hundred percent. Um, and well, to sorry. where you really continue. What's that? Continue. Sorry. <laughs> I want you to talk. No, I was just like to where you don't have that instinctual. Uh, let's say ethos created yeah of like okay this is how this is how i will proceed this is how this will go um and that's always that's always a bit bizarre but in general you just kind of like yep a little flag goes up it's like okay yeah we're there right and i also think that i'm a I, I, I don't know. I actually think you're a bit of an outlier in how you approach things, and I have some notes written down that I want to kind of uh, talk on a little bit, but um, I don't think I'm not weird, but I don't think that I'm as different as your approach is. Mine is kind of like I view thing, I view this whole thing as a puzzle. Yeah. And it's whenever I receive a mix, how together is this puzzle and how many pieces are needed yeah. in order to get this to where it needs to go. That's kind of how I view this. And it's like, or let's say you're kind of looking through a camera lens and it's like, how much more do we need to focus this, adjust parameters in order to kind of achieve like the perfect exposure Um like clarity of the image and whatnot, or it's like it, maybe that's not even what we're going for. Um, how many pieces really need to be left out of the puzzle in order for the puzzle to be appreciated as the art that it was intended to be, like like from the artist? And so that's like a whole nother conversation. But I think what you do is even more, at least from how I've seen, not kosher. Not not kosher, but not normal. Yeah. Because I don't think that a lot of mastering engineers from the research and talking with people that I've done, I don't think a lot of people approach it from the, what is this song doing well? 100%. I think that's very weird. Yeah. I, I don't think it it's bad. I think that it's a fun mindset that I think I definitely want to employ in the next session I have coming up. <laughs> I think I might take a note, pop it on my desk of like, what is this song doing well? And then put a heart and then Sam. <laughs> a little note from Sam to me. So what is this song doing well? Um, what is this other thing? Uh, what is standing out and enhancing that? And I, I feel like depending on where you are kind of in your journey... Uh, you're going to kind of have like a luxury on whether or not what is standing out is actually intentional as opposed to that mix engineer, producer, whatever, tracking engineer, that was the room talking more than it is, or that is their response to either their room or acoustic things going on or odd things happening during tracking and trying to cover things up. Um, right. Because with me, it's like if something's overly dry, it's like I might try to pop some reverb in there. Totally. Not a lot, just a little bit. 
it doesn't happen often, but it happened this morning. And it's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to blend this in at like 1% or 2%. And it just gave things like a proper depth and whatnot. And so um, I feel like I'm having to correct less and less. Yeah. But the things that I am correcting, I'm having to be more confident about those moves that I'm making because it's more of a... Everything is significantly more make or break lots of money on the line for kind of everybody involved. Yeah. And it's like you can't really be making a lot of the mistakes that I may have been. And I don't even say mistakes, but let's just say like judgment calls. Yeah. I may have made a certain judgment call 10 years ago that I'm not making now. Right. Um, And so... I think that I do have a little bit of a luxury of enhancing what is standing out. Um, but I don't think that what is standing out in a lot of the mixes I'm receiving um, is always what's like someone's intending. Like if I get something that like a vocal is just like way too hot, it's like I don't think I could necessarily like lean into that. Um, you might be able to. But it's to. like I'm going to... What's it? I yeah. you might be able to. I, yeah. I'm going to write these two things down on a sticky note, stick it on my <laughs> desk, and I think uh, the next handful of sessions I'm going to really see how this mindset applies. But I don't think it's a normal mindset. Oh, I know I think that not. a lot of people... I, I Yeah, I think, a, I think a lot of people, uh, let's say a lot of mastering engineers, receive something with the expectation that they are going to have to make some type of adjustment. Right. I think which means that what they're receiving isn't like like oh what's doing well. It's right. no, it's like what am I going to have to do? Yeah. I think is a bit of a mindset. It's like oh what is this need? What's missing? Yeah. I think And it's just an go, sorry. go ahead. No, you go finish your thought. Well, I was just going to say it's an interesting perspective because it comes from the standpoint of um I would love to be helpful, but I know that what's happening here is going to be beautiful in and of itself. Right. And so it's just an, it's just a, and you and I have had countless episodes in the past where we say mastering is really just a mindset. And arguably, one of the most important mindsets is how you approach something going into it. Right. And so it's a, it's a different operating system. And I, think I want to check it out. You should. So I just, you- I think for me, like for all those less listening out there, like I had a massive change in my career when I started approaching songs. And I do, I'm not saying I created this mindset either, but I don't know any other master engineer that has ever talked about this topic like this. And mm-hmm. I switched to basically like, instead of what is bothering me, when I'm mastering and like, I never start with the mindset of what can I fix in this song? It never goes through my head at this point. And when I do like get a song, my approach is always like, what can I highlight and what is sticking out and whatever is sticking out. Like a lot of people would be like, Oh, I need to fix that pokey vocal or, Oh, the bottom end's too boomy. Yes. There's probably some truth of like, well, maybe it's their room, you know, maybe that's why it's that way. But this gets into how to review a master because you've got to understand that your client is going to review that song again in their environment. 
And this probably gets into, I could have my own pushback with it, but I assume that whatever the client has sent me, they're pretty stoked on, unless they're specifically saying something different. And I really believe that for me, like I cracked kind of the code on mastering of how I've gained success and like grown the company so large is like by focusing on what the mix seems to seems to tell me. Um, And I find that, you know, when I stopped focusing on fixing things and started focusing on what is already great in the song, I just began highlighting too, like the producer and the mixer choices, which, and even the artist choice, like of their song and what the song is doing great. And that's based on, this is where it gets interesting to me and I'm still like unpacking this thought, but when you approach a song that way, I would argue, or let me just present it, that I am actually operating from a place of non-bias at that stage where I have taken myself, what is Sam going to master? How Sam going to master this song is now gone because all I'm doing is focusing on what is the song already telling me to do. And what it's Mm. telling me to do is actually what the artist chose, what the mixer chose, what the producer chose. So if I am here as a master engineer to honor the integrity of all those stages and to be able to call the record done or not, I would argue that the purest way to do it is by almost, in fact, doing it the way I do it, which is I'm no longer approaching it of like, what can I do? I'm approaching it from what has the mix and the song already done and how can I just show that even more? Mm. That to me removes my ego and my bias of when I approach a song. It also removes my, and this is so common with mastering engineers and in every part of like audio is people think they have to do a lot of things to prove their their worth or value. I don't ever feel like I have to prove my value or worth by doing a bunch of things to a song and making it sound different. I found when I make songs (laughs) sound really different, that's when I like piss off the client. <laughs> and so mm. for me, what I found is by respecting, truly respecting the mix and what's there and what's standing out, most dudes I do talk to are like, oh, you're going to fix that? I'm like, no, I'm going to boost it. You know, like I'm going <laughs> to boost the pokey vocal. Like I'm going to boost the, oh, there's a bunch of mud. Yeah, let's saturate the mud. Let's make it even bigger, you know, and muddier. Because these are all personal bias, in my opinion, you know, and that gets into, you know, the same master engineer can master, we could all master the same song and essentially it could probably all come out, you know, 10 different people master it, all 10 masters could come out and probably compete if you're a decent engineer. But I find where I excel at is honoring the client and I honor the client often by honoring whatever the song is doing. I just spend all my effort trying to make it you know, people say like, oh, it's my song on steroids. It's my song inflated. Like, I rarely get a comment where someone's like, oh my gosh, it sounds so different and I love that. You know, mm. the, the the comments are usually basically, I don't know how you did this. It's my song, but just like even more my song, even more the vibe, even more whatever. And I think that comes from my approach. Um, and I found when I started I don't even know why I started doing that outside of like, I think I was getting so tired of feeling like creating friction with people by trying to fix their songs. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I'm so tired of this, of like basically dealing with people who really don't even appreciate, they don't even appreciate the fixing because that's not what they want. Yeah. 
Like they don't even want you to fix it. They're not coming to mastering. Most clients are not coming to me. Even if they have a recommendation, it doesn't mean there's a complaint. You know, a direction doesn't mean there's something wrong with mix. They're like, hey, we'd like it to be a bit bassier. That doesn't necessarily mean this mean the song actually is lacking bass and they don't like the bass. It could just mean like, hey, we like bass, make it bassier, <laughs> you know, and do it at mastering. So I've found that to be like a big secret or my approach and that I know is a part of my success and how people like mixers love working with me because I highlight their mix, you know, and I think it's the same with the producers and the artists. They really like the way my masters sound because I'm not in there trying to fix or tinker or like correct everything. I'm in there boosting till my problems go away. And essentially I'm just boosting whatever's been highlighted and that is, you know, part of me like finishing the record. So anyway, that's my little tangent on that. But you should definitely try it out and see how it goes. Because yeah, I think it's and, fun. <laughs> I mean, I do think that your way has a lot less ego involved than I think a lot of, um, let's say, let's use the word ethos and philosophy of approaching mastering that some people may have. Uh, I do think there's less ego involved. And I don't say that people approach something prideful of like, I'm going to fix this. Right. Um, and I wouldn't say that I approach something prideful because I, and, and I know this empirically because whenever I go back and I listen to the mix and the master, one of the things I look for is how close is the master to the mix. Yeah. Um, and unless somebody literally in the checklist says like, F this up, which <laughs> happens a lot. They're just like, yeah, do whatever the heck you want to this. Just F it up. Take it to whatever extreme you want to take it to. Um, and I might have some fun with it. Um, but it's like when I see it come in as a puzzle, one of the things that definitely runs across my mind is, is what pieces are missing from the puzzle, Yeah, in my opinion, which I don't think there's ego there. It's just my opinion. Right. Yep. And then do those pieces need to be put in place? Um, and so by that of seeing how close is the mix to the master as far as like sonic, sonic like sure relevance as far as translatability, as far as like what's all going on, where this I believe needed to go. And knowing, like listening to the master and being like, are all the pieces actually here? And does the artist actually want to hear? I mean, remember, it's like I'm kind of like working on some psychedelic music, like a lot of indie stuff. And so some pieces may be missing on purpose and stuff. Some stuff might be wrong. There might be too much delay or something on purpose. And I would say that to me is a missing piece, but it's a creative decision to leave the piece out. Yeah. Um, so I would... I don't think I have an incredible amount of ego that you, oh, you need to use me and I need to go make videos on how I make all my stuff and not against anyone who does that because everyone needs to do it like me. <laughs> no offense. Um, but, um, yeah. I It has kind of dawned on me. We have gone down this road for 30 minutes and we are nowhere close to answering <laughs> the main question. No, we should probably just pivot and call this of episode this, something different. And we should 
keep this going. So Correct. when is a master done? I think we have established that it's instinctual. I believe we've established that we both have a different way of approaching things. And in what degree ego plays a part in that, how far you should deviate from a mix. Um, I believe that also covers when is enough enough, that question. Yes. Um, Let's take a, while we're on the tangent, let's take 10 minutes or so and say, so say you have a single, say you have a record, say you have a record that you have a bunch of singles for and you need to integrate those singles into a record. Mm-hmm. How do you approach like the how do you approach the two differently? Do you approach them differently? A single versus a record. Yeah. And then like integrating those singles into a record. I think all of this is of relevance. Yes. To reviewing your master. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is episode that, is, is is that teeing you up enough? Yeah, I mean this episode's more like now for like the mastery engineer, how do you review your master? <laughs> no, this whole episode is for the mastery engineer, and that's why I said this yeah. is like a 201 right. 301 class. It's great. Um yeah, I think, you know, singles singles and full lengths are very different to me. Um ideally you would have a conversation with the client and say, "Do you ever 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 think this single will be on a record?" <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah, and usually the answer will be yes. You know, they'll be like, yeah, probably will. So with that, I always keep, you know, then I kind of ask them like, this is also like a business thing where you can. I ask clients, you know, when do you think we'll do more songs? Then you know, if we're doing a single now, you think it's going to be a record? Is that the next twelve months? Next three months? What's your plan? If they have no plan, they're like, oh, I haven't even written them yet. Then you're probably not getting a record in the first year, (laughs) in the first Mm. 12 months. (laughs) But usually you'll get clients, you know, at this stage for me at least, you know, I I work with, I'll say people that take it pretty seriously. And they're usually like, yeah, I'm writing song. You know, I got six songs written or yeah, we're in mixed stage on, you know, three more. And then I want to get four more, things of that nature. And so you can kind of get a feel even from a business standpoint of, okay, what's coming down the pipeline with this client? Okay, let's make a little note on their file or on their email or however you're organizing your clients, which is probably a whole other episode now that I'm talking mm-hmm. about that. It's like like managing your clients. Um, oh, I have it on our list. Yeah, write that down. Um, so anyway, you can immediately be like, okay, cool. Like, you know, you know when to follow up, et cetera, et cetera. We'll talk about all that managing mm-hmm. the clients on a different episode. Anyway, if they say yes, it'll be on a record eventually, then you want to make sure you master that single to be um, essentially approachable if other songs come in that are a little different. So Mm. if you get a single and they say, yeah, it'll probably be on another record or an EP or something, you don't want to master it the loudest you can ever master a song, in my opinion. And by that, I mean Mm. compression. So... I will often not take the song or even push it as loud as it could potentially go and still sound great, knowing that, man, if another, if a ballady type song comes in, or maybe the first song is a ballad where it's like acoustic piano and vocal, and that I know that song's just going to be perceived as louder already, sure. just because it's so sparse, then I know I can't crank that one to 11. Like, I have to know, okay, well, a super jam-packed pop song is probably coming at some point in this record. And those songs, yes, you can make them very loud, but if the acoustic songs read and say negative four 
on dynamic range and the dense pop song is negative four on dynamic range, that acoustic song with a vocal and piano is going to be screaming loud from a perceived yeah. level to where that vocal is sitting so up front and clear that in a dense pop mix, that sounds terrific and on the meters is equally as loud is not going to be perceived as loud. And Luffs yeah. doesn't even really do a great job with that either, which a lot of people are like, oh, just use Luffs, that's the equalizer. It's not. It's It's got many flaws. So anyway, you have to use your ears and, and some intelligence to what I call like future-proofing myself. Um, Matt and I, I think, have often, or at least on my end, I've sent Matt texts where I'm saying, oh, why did I do this? Or, you know, I think Matt, you said like, dear future Matt, don't... <laughs> <laughs> don't do this song that loud, you know. And I, I've had that where, too, where clients like, oh, it, it won't be on a record, and then your four songs in there, and then they really do decide, oh, I need it, the other six to be on a record, because they get some traction, some momentum. Maybe they signed a deal. Maybe they found an investor. Maybe they just decided they want to do a record. Then at mm. that stage, you know, it's like, oh, I hope I didn't shoot myself in the foot to make all these feel cohesive, which leads into how do you approach a record, which is. For me, records are heavily based on getting the vocal to sound the same from start to finish on every record, making that level for sure be the same as my number one goal. If you go song to song, is the vocal feeling basically in the same pocket and the same presentation? If it is, everything else has worked itself out. That is my number one like cheat sheet guide is if I'm approaching a record or reviewing a record, I'm listening for the vocal first, then I'm usually paying attention to the bottom end. What is the bottom mm -hmm. end doing? But I'm most concerned about the vocal and listening to, when I go song 1 to 13, does the vocal from track to track sound the same? Because what you're going to find is on the meters, every song then is going to be a little different. They're not all going to read negative 5 or negative 6. They're going to read within a couple... We'll just call them units, whichever metering you like, or maybe use multiple mm. metering. You'll find that on a record, the songs are not all identical. But from a perceived standpoint, especially with the vocal, you'll find that it's quote-unquote identical to where there's nothing distracting happening. The vocal doesn't sound super loud in song three compared to five compared to seven and vice versa. So I'm always thinking about the vocal and where is the vocal sitting so if I get like, if I do get first from a single, you know, if someone truly is like, this is just a single, I have no intention as of now to make a record, I just need it to like come out and stand alone. Or I do work with some artists who really do, they just put out singles and then they do put out a record where those singles are so far detached that they don't end up on the record. Like Drake does that all the time. He'll just put out random singles that literally don't make it on a record. Um, you know, then at that stage, it's, I usually try and make it as loud as it can be, you know, while still sounding great if their end goal is to compete in the, say, top 40-ish type of genres. Those songs are still taken mm -hmm. to be very loud. So I kind of ignore the, uh, the thought of, well, will there be more songs, you know, that will have to match this. And then I'm heavily on that stage, then I'm, I'm comparing in theory not while I'm working, but I'm thinking, I'm reviewing, okay, what is out currently that's just like this? Where is it landing on the meters? What does it sound like? Where is the vocal on that? And then I will often master that single to kind of match, in theory, whatever f 
famous pop song is right now, you know, or has been on the charts of Spotify for a while, top 100 global or something. So mm. the single to album approach, it's two different mindsets. Um, one is basically with the single, you know, crank it to 11. The, one, the other one is if you know it's an album or will be on an album, you got to make all the songs play nice and the way you make them play nice and make the vocal feel consistently pocketed the same way. Also, I will pick out in the mix, usually the loudest mix, and make that my like ruler or like my guideline. So if somebody sends me 13 tracks, I meter all the choruses, and I go, okay, these two thus far on the meters are showing to be, you know, quote-unquote the loudest. Then I'll listen to them, um, you know, and go, okay, that one definitely sounds the loudest. And then I have to, in theory, make all the other songs kind of get to that spot. Or if really there's one outlier, like there's just one song that just, you know, is so oddly different, then I'll make that one fit in with the other 13. It's kind of whatever the majority is. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll lean towards that. And that kind of gets into you know, then you have to marry that with what I talked about earlier of like, how do we enhance what the mix is saying, you know, or what is it, what is it doing well? Well, in that one song, that's a bit of an odd duck. It could still be doing really well things. So that's sometimes a balancing act or even a conversation with the client then to go, hey, these 11 songs, the vocals really glued in. And then on this 12th one, you know, or it's song three, the vocal just feels like screaming loud. You know, when you get something like that, you know, with the context of like 12, 10, 13 songs, then I think it is worth to to potentially bring up to the client and say, hey, just want to make sure, you know, this one. And sometimes they might say, just leave it as it is. That's fine. It's a vibe. You know, it's a mood, whatever. Or they might say like, oh yeah, we want them to all feel cohesive. So then, you know, you got to move one to match the other. <clears throat> so that's my, that's my like 100 foot view on it and how I kind of approach them. What do you, how do you do it, Matt? I mean, I would say that like, there is definitely a trend going on now, at least the past year or so, with clients that I work with, could be clients you work with, or clients that other people work with, where it's like, singles are king. Yeah. And it's like, you have the 12-song album with 10 singles on it. And you didn't know that it was going to be an album until you were like four singles in. And the first time you get something like that, you're like, man, I really wish I knew because I got four sessions. <laughs> right. I got another single I'm staring down the barrel of and I have a sneaking yes. suspicion there's going to be a record with all these bad guys on it. And uh, we're going to need to kind of figure this out. So sometimes you don't really know until it dawns on you of right. like, wait a second. And... Uh, I mean, sometimes you are in the position where something is kind of screaming loud, and for the record, it might need to be uh, adjusted a little bit. Um, I just finished up a record that I mastered in the summer of last year, and they're wanting to put out vinyl. They wanted two deluxe songs on the record. Everything sounds fantastic, but then like some songs are pulled over from 
uh, other releases that were singles or maybe like one from another record, like a smaller EP. And um, it's you just kind of have to be flexible. Yeah. Um, I think the most important thing with all of this, and I'm not saying any of that was bad. One, this all 100% is doable. Um, but I think it is paramount to have perfect communication mm-hmm. through this whole process with the client because you're going to need to manage expectations. Yeah. Certain things that were mastered at different times might sound a little bit different. If it's kind of older, you might not have the same piece of gear anymore that the rest of the album was mastered with. Might have come from a while ago. Um, maybe their tracking conditions were completely different, and so some songs aren't sounding like the rest of the record. Um, and so I think making sure that you are having the appropriate conversations with uh, your clients so that there's not any kind of weird moments. And I'm not saying cast doubt at all on the record. You never want to do that, Mm -hmm. especially at the mastering stage. But um, if there is something that comes up, I mean, I I think that communication is incredibly important. Um, And get that kind of, like, kind of get that verbiage spelled out in your head about as early as you can. But yeah, if you're of the the mindset, it's like you're doing two singles, you hear there's a bunch on the way, you see a bunch of other mixes in the <laughs> folder that aren't approved yet. It's like, all right, you need to like, all right, what's if you have a if you have a track list, which they probably don't like that early in the project, if it's 10 songs and they're doing one a month or something, you probably don't have like a track list or something like that. But you can kind of get a level for things but just make sure that it's the expectations are managed at a to a place to where it's like okay we're we have a like 10 of or 12 things singles that we now need to bring all together and to be cohesive when they were never intended initially to be cohesive mm-hmm. and so um it's a bit of a balancing act. It's a bit of a juggling act. Um, but singles in general, it's like if it's just a single, a single's a single's a single, like let it rip. Have fun with it. And, like make it go loud. And um it's actually funny that you said the uh the pop song next to the piano ballad at the same level doesn't come out the same. Um and the piano ballad kind of rips the head off of the pop song. I have a record I'm working on right now where that is the exact situation. Yeah, it's hard. And it's kind of like <laughs> and it's like one it's like pop. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's pop into kind of like uh piano and then there's like kind of like an uppity song, kind of pop, but kind of like I I don't really know how to describe it. Um and it's a bit difficult to manage because how how do you how do you make all this work? It's not difficult. It's it, there's there's just like a bit of like a little bit more of like forethought that goes into it. Yeah. Um. Not nothing nothing overly difficult though. Um. But then like as like as a record, it's like yeah, it's like make sure that we're like make sure we're te- like the the story that the artist is telling 
make sure that the way that you are putting everything together is kind of honoring that story. Yeah. And what's interesting as well is I feel like a, almost more can be said and done. This is, this is going to sound kind of weird, and I know we have eight minutes left. It's going to sound kind of weird and out in left field, but you can almost do it more from what's not in the song. So like whenever you're kind of spacing the album out, mm-hmm. if you have like, if you need to like give something like a little bit more space, so you have like a really big song and then you kind of have like, I don't, I, not necessarily a ballad or whatnot, but it's just like a little down moment in the record maybe giving it just like a touch more space, maybe like a half second or maybe even a quarter second more than you normally would in your record spacing. I've found that that almost works as a pretty impressive buffer in you're kind of managing the expectations of like the listener to a degree. You're giving their ears like a time to cool off Mm -hmm. after like a real hopping song. And so that's another way to do it as well. With the eight minutes we have left, we should probably cover the the main part of, I suppose, <laughs> this uh, this college lecture. <laughs> so, like, you're 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 done. You are on the other side. You have this done. You hit that that instinctual flag is up. You're able to decide how to approach this record, this single, this EP, whatever you got differently. You have your mindset down. Um, and you kind of have your path forward. You know how the puzzle looks. Maybe it's not a puzzle. What is this song doing well? What is this record doing well? However you're approaching this, you have it. Sam, how do you review this? I don't... I don't really review... Once I'm doing it in a session, and I kind of lay out my map... You know, of how I'm going to master this, especially if it's a record. Okay, I got to get song five to be like this and blah, blah, blah. I got to make them all play nice together. I work on it in the session, then I print, and then I actually do not listen to it before I send it off. I trust my gut 100%. Because the first thing I actually it's want. Ballsy. It, I, yeah, I guess, but I literally do not listen to it again before I send it off. Hmm. Um, I will make it, I'll listen to it down in the session. You know, while it's printing in the box or out of the box, whatever. And then I export it all, you know, do the fade-ins and outs, and then just package it up and send it out. Because at that stage, I really want client feedback next. Um, As -hmm, soon as possible, I always want client feedback as soon as possible, which some people would say, well, you should just do attended sessions. But there is a place where the client doesn't need to know how the sausage gets made. Not that it's a secret, but I often will highlight things, not that are wrong, but sometimes a client, when they're in an attended session in a new room or something, will hear the record differently and then assume the whole record's different and weird. So mm-hmm. that's the last thing you want to do. That's how you plant a seed of doubt. Do attended sessions for a seed of doubt. Um, so anyway, I just print it and send it and say, hey, the masters are great. I usually do take notes in my sessions of like what I like about the songs and I relay that to them. You know, there's things that stand out in the record or singles that 
I want the client to just be aware of that is great. You know, what it that that would be where I bring in my bias. Not while I'm working, but hey, this song, man, it just felt like the drums are just knocking so hard. You know, I will bring up the things that I noticed. Now, the funny thing is, usually what I tell them is like what they wanted it to be. They're like, oh yeah, that's what we wanted, you know, because it's what what the song was telling me. So it's usually like a, a lineup thing. Or I'll tell them, hey, it sounds like a mix of, you know, the 1975 plus one Republic. And it's oddly weird that sometimes, a lot of times actually, people will be like, that's exactly the references we were going with if they didn't send me any references. So it's, uh, I trust my gut like 110% at this stage. Um, I've learned that client feedback is so, so important. So for me, I don't take it to the car. I don't listen to it at all. I usually will not listen to that record again um, until it comes out. And that'll be like the first time I listen to it in my car or something is when it's when it came out. Um, but I trust my room 100%. Trust myself at this stage. And then I trust the client. The client, the weird thing about the mastering is like the client, when you send that master back to them, they're now becoming that new set of ears for you, which is an interesting sure. thing. Um, so their feedback is extremely valuable on that first pass of version one where they're going to catch things you missed probably still, or they're going to sign off and be one, you nailed it, you know, which is in theory the goal. But I'm never offended or afraid to get client feedback. Um, what I deliver, I'm always confident that if that did come out, I'd be stoked on it. It would compete. I'm proud of it. But I want client feedback immediately. And they almost become like my little safety net again, which I'm happy to say like the client becomes a fresh set of ears again, which is a value. It's like an iron sharpening iron or like a continual filtering process um, to where they get to hear the record again with fresh ears essentially um, and kind of sign off on it or not. So anyway, that's my thoughts. What do you think, Matt? You can go like five minutes over if you want, Matt. It's fine. So, how you review your master is you don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm reviewing <laughs> it as spoiler. I'm like printing. Yeah, that's the, the short <laughs> answer is I don't... I feel like I've already reviewed it and that I've committed to yeah. what I wanted to do, you know, and I'm, I know that I trust that and then, you know, yeah. So, that's the answer, yeah. I don't review it, <laughs> I guess. If you want to say it that way. I would say that if I like review something, it's not necessarily from a point of it needs it. Yeah. So like generally the way that like my process works, I used to think it's inefficient and it may still be, but I don't think it is anymore. Uh, I used to kind of complain that I thought it was inefficient, but it's like I get a song in and then like any pre-processing that happens, if it's an analog, if it's going analog, um, that pre-processing is like essentially how do I want this song to hit the gear? And sometimes it has something on it, sometimes it doesn't have anything on it. We go through an analog chain, once again, if it goes analog, and then any edit, whatever, mastering mumbo is done there. Um, mumbo as in like, you know, the highest quality mastering grade mumbo. Um and then any post-processing is kind of, okay, let's get this up to the level it needs to go to. Is there anything else that th this song may need 
on the digital side. And just sometimes digital things work better than analog things. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're quicker, they're more sterile. Um, and generally, you go out of the box for tone, or you 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 just work a little bit better that way. Um, and so, the by the time I get back in and I'm doing any post processing, let's just say it is a record. Um, so I have all of my prints. Let's say it's a seven song record. I have all of my prints. Any post-processing I have done, I might do one final listen just kind of with like certain limiters pulled up and I'll go through and I'll just make sure that stuff's transitioning well, stuff sounds good, nothing's like overly peaky. And that's kind of the last review that happens. Unless I'm hearing like a lot of like random clicks or pops and it's like now that you're to level, I'm definitely checking, is this something that came came ported over from the mix. Nine times out of ten, yes, it is. Uh, it could just be random edits or who like instruments turning on and off, um, like a weird no- noisy synth or something like that, a creaky bench. Who knows? And in that case, if it is from the mix, I will take it over to like RX and I'll kind of like QC all songs just in case uh, that is elsewhere. Um, but besides that, you know, I'm actually kind of along the same path. The only time I really listen to it between when I export it and um, when, like, the client has it is if I'm just kind of like, yeah, I think that sounds really good. What do I want to listen to tonight? Let's go back and listen to this I don't know, on my phone or something like yeah. that. And it's generally just like, uh, I want to hear what the client's going to hear because they're going to probably listen on their phone or their AirPods. And I'll just go like throw them in, but it's like everything is sent off by that point. Yes. And so I would definitely say there's definitely like a part of like your gut that you you trust that you have to trust. Yeah. And so um, unless there's something in RX or whatnot that needs to happen, um, and it's kind of rare if there's something noisy that happens uh, on my gear side, but it's like, you know, sometimes it's like, the only thing that really gets cranky is the Neve. And it's like, you know, you just kind of figure out ways to make it not noisy. And so, um, but that's like once in a blue moon. Um, I Like everything else is pretty darn quiet at this point. And I've gone to like obnoxious lengths to make sure that everything stays pretty quiet. So yeah, I would say I also don't review it once it's exported. Unless I just want to hear what it's going to sound like when the client listens to it. Um Anyway, I think that's the episode. That is a full darn hour. That's great. Um, Yeah, this episode went in a much cooler direction than I thought it would. So I'm excited for everyone to listen to it. Uh, Do you have anything else for the people? No, I like this one. I do too. I actually rarely feel good about an episode when we're (laughs) done recording. I'm like... I'm not a self-conscious person, but I'm just like, ah, that could have been better. Or like, like I could have done better. Or like, I could have like came better prepared when we don't prepare much. Um, we just kind of take notes and have like a fun time. And I, I love, I mean, we're on the end, back end of a two-hour call. So, um, anywho, um, if you hear a sweet beat queuing up in the background, that was made by Sam. Uh, shoot him some thanks, some love. And uh, just tell them thanks for putting these episodes together. I am 
always thankful. And I do not say that half-heartedly. It's, I listen to these episodes uh, for the first time exactly like y'all do. And I'm just like, good grief, he did a killer job on these. So thank you so much. So, um, If you need a mastering engineer, Sam can be found at Moses Mastering. I can be found at For The Record Mastering. If you wouldn't mind leaving us a review or just writing into us saying, hey, uh, we would appreciate that. And uh, yeah, morning, afternoon, evening, whatever y'all are having. Hope y'all have a darn good one. Woohoo! Did I miss anything? That's perfect, Pat. So good. Cue the music. Yay! See y'all. <laughs>